following is a presentation of the Treasure Island Baseball Network. Behind every memorable moment and career highlight on the diamond. And the Twins are baseball's world champion. The Twins go to the seventh game. Touch them all, Kirby Puckett. Gone! A walk-off for Chanel! And the Twins win it! Are the true gems. The inside stories and tales. I remember in the beginning of that season in 1997, I was sleeping in a car in a parking lot. I was broke and I was thinking about quitting. I'm looking at it, reading it, and I'm like, this dude messed up my ball. Like my first home run ball, he just totally messed it up. That's probably one of my favorite plays of my career, just considering in the stadium, um, you know, game's over, he scores. And it, was, it was a pretty cool moment. And you will find those candid, casual conversations here on the Twins Clubhouse Podcast. Now, here's Chris Atterbury. Well, hello and welcome once again inside the Twins Clubhouse. Today's episode of the Twins Clubhouse is brought to you by Securian Financial. We can help you make every moment count. Find out more about their insurance, investment, and retirement solutions at securian.com. You heard some of the voices in our billboard who have joined us in the Twins Clubhouse. And today we continue a run of Twins Hall of Famers. We go back to Michael Kadire. We had Tory Hunter and Joe Maurer certainly going to join that group. And now Mr. Jim Cott, kind enough to join us here today. One of my all-time favorite guys to talk baseball or anything else with. And uh, Jim, we really appreciate your time and welcome to the Twins Clubhouse. Well, thank you. Good to be in the Twins Clubhouse. Wish we were doing it live and covering some uh, baseball, but this is the next best thing. Yeah, if we can't be in an actual clubhouse, we might as well create a virtual clubhouse. So that's what we've done. Uh, And we are going to walk through some of the many, many great moments of yours as a Minnesota twin, talk about some of your uh, memories, some of your teammates, and just try to have a a whole lot of fun. And uh, part of the fun for me is digging around and and trying to find some different uh, bits of information that maybe we haven't tilled through too much through the years. And uh, one thing I noticed, Jim, is we kick this off your debut in August of 1959, the first two guys you faced were Hall of Famers. Way to go right into the deep end of the pool. It was Luis uh, Aparicio, Nellie Fox, and then Al Smith, one, two, and three in your debut. Nice start. Yes, that was a, that was a strange time because coming up from the Chattanooga lookouts, I had had some really dominant games early in the year. I had set a Southern Association League strikeout record striking out 19 and then a couple starts later i got a little uh something in my shoulder that didn't feel right of course in those days you had no x-rays mris things like that you just went in say my shoulder doesn't feel well so i was not pitching particularly well and you, you when you hear the end of this story you know it would never happen today they way that monitor pitchers so our manager, Red Marion, calls me in and he said, kid, you're going to the big leagues. My parents had actually just arrived in Chattanooga to watch me pitch. And I said, boy, that's a surprise because I said, Red, you know, uh, I got a little something wrong on my shoulder. He said, you go up there and tell them about it. So <laughs> I go up and I, I start that game facing Aparicio and Fox. I did okay, I think, the first couple. But after that first inning, uh, Walter Beck and Cookie Lavagetto, the manager pitching coach, they said, kid, what happened to you? I said, well, I hurt my shoulder somehow a little bit. My arm angle had dropped way down. So I, I did not pitch very well or very long in that debut. And then right after that, I had a little uh, surgical procedure. I had a some kind of a cyst in, uh, in my back that was keeping me from throwing with a natural motion. So 
it wasn't a very auspicious debut, but uh, the cool thing about it is that at halftime, at uh, the break in the doubleheader, the second game of the doubleheader, between games of a doubleheader, Louis Armstrong performed on the field. Ooh. And I was an old trumpet player in high school, so I had a tough time warming up for the game because I wanted to watch Louie play the trumpet. <laughs> How about that? You're getting ready to yeah. make your debut, and uh, and you got Louis Armstrong there to serenade you. That's uh, quite a bit of, uh, of kismet there to, to bring it all together. Well, you came back in September of 59, Jim. Uh, and again, the start of what would be a, a long and, and wonderful career. And another oddity... Uh, that that our producer Mark Janoski dug up, the first man you struck out and the first guy to homer off you was the same guy. Do you remember who it was? I'm going to say it was probably Don Button. Yep. Yeah, you're you're the only guy who would have got that right. I don't even know if Don Budden would have got that right. Not exactly a, <laughs> a household name, but I want to say it was at Fenway Park, and you struck yes, him out one day, and then a couple days later he put you in the book. Yeah, I think. Uh... There's another case where I had not really pitched since my debut, and it was the end of the year, and and they said, well, we're going to, you know, last game, we're going to try to give all you guys a little work. You want to go ahead and, and uh, try to pitch a couple. And he said, of course, again, comparing that to today, that would never happen. You'd have a mm-hmm. kid rehab. You wouldn't just throw them out there. But the cool thing was is that I pitched to Ted Williams that day, and I didn't do very well. But I can remember uh, I came out early to the park, no security there. I, I could kind of walk right into Fenway Park because I knew Ted Williams played Pepper. Now, a lot of young fans and young players probably don't remember what Pepper is, but behind the cage, Ted Williams would be there with a bat, and he'd be tapping balls back to the owner, Tom Yawkey, and the, and the clubhouse man, Johnny Orlando. He did that every day, and I knew that. I followed that. So I watched him. I watched him take BP, and then I got to pitch to him during the game, and I remember – when he stepped in, I turned around to our second baseman, John Shivey, who was a teammate of mine in the minors, and I kind of cut my hands. I said, Shive, you believe this? I'm facing Ted Williams. <laughs> because, see, we, we didn't have cable TV. All, all I knew about Ted Williams is what I saw on the back of his of his bubblegum card and obviously knew what a great hitter he was. And then fast forward, I got a chance to meet Ted. I spoke at the uh, opening of his tunnel. I think it was in 97. So he roughed me up that day. I did retire him in, uh, in his uh, one appearance against me in 1960, which was his last year. But I always count that as a, as a real, uh, as a real thrill, even though he was two for three against me to be able to say, I, I faced Ted Williams. Yeah, but you start with a couple Hall of Famers, then you go to the the next level with a guy like Ted Williams. And it's funny that that these guys crop up so early in your career because if I look at the guys you faced the most or had the most success against or who had some success against you over the bulk of your multi-decade career, Jim, it's all Hall of Fame caliber guys. Could you guess who had the most hits against you? uh, Recently, you know, Al Kaline passed away. Yep. of course, Al Kaline hit more home runs off me than he hit off any other pitcher, and I gave up more home runs to Al Kaline than to any other hitter. So if there was ever a guy that owned me, it was Al Kaline. I, I do remember my 25th win in '66, one to nothing. Tony Oliva hit a home run in the ninth off Earl Wilson. Kaline struck out three times that game, and of course, I got to know Al later through Gold Glove dinners and. 
and uh, in the booth when he did Tiger games. And I said, what in the world went wrong on that Saturday afternoon, I think it was. And uh, uh, he said, well, I, I don't think I was picking up the ball well. It was kind of a bright day there at the old Met. And I, was, uh, I just I sold it for him to strike out three times in the game off me. He had to be blindfolded. But it is a... It is kind of a treat to look at uh, Yaz and Louis Aparicio and Brooksy and uh, and Al Kaline. They're the four guys I've competed the most against, and I guess I helped put them all in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, Al Kaline, of course, one of the, the finest gentlemen the game has ever known. Um, and, and as you being a Michigan kid, I mean, I can't even imagine what, what that must have been like, too. Um, the way he's still revered and rightfully so in Detroit. Yeah, when he came up, you know, the the way we got our baseball news was through the newspaper. Uh, and it was Kaline and Keene. You know, mm-hmm. Al was, a, I, I believe it was the late Sherry Robertson who actually scouted him for the Senators, who we were, for you young fans, we were the Washington Senators before we were the Minnesota Twins. And the scouting report on him, this kid's too skinny to hit. You know, because he was he was just such a lean, almost frail like teenager, and uh, he he re you know he maintained that type of physique during his whole career. Yet he was wiry, strong. You know, he hit uh, 399 home runs, missed that 400 by one. But what a complete player! You know, great outfielder, accurate arm, Gold Glove fielder, could run the bases well. He wouldn't fit in today's game because uh, he bail and whale and strike out 200 times and hit 35 home runs. He just could play baseball the way in my era we we were trained and learned to play the game. What a, a wonderful man. It's funny, you mentioned all the names I was going to get to, Jim. Most hits against you, Brooks Robinson, Aparicio, and then Yastrzemski. Three big-time Hall of Famers. K-Line had the most home runs. Uh, you struck out Reggie Jackson more than you struck out anybody, so uh, another big name there. The second most home runs guy by the name of Mickey Mantle who had a decent career, and Lou Clinton. So of all those guys, everybody knows everyone on the list except Lou Clinton. How did Lou Clinton sneak into this party? I'll tell you, I wish I knew. You know, he, he played in the minor leagues with the, with the Red Sox AAA. I think I faced him there. But I want to say, I don't know, one – one year in his career, he's like 15 for 25 against me. So I could not get him out. And I could walk down off the mound and tell him what was coming. You know, I was saying to myself, you know, I'd rather face Mickey Mantle and Lou Clinton. But, uh, yeah. Every pitcher has one of those hitters, and every hitter has one of those pitchers. Like my, my good friend, teammate Tommy Hutton with the Phillies, I think his average against Tom Seaver is close to 400. Ooh. And, you know, Hutton. Hutt was, uh, unlike most lefties who are low-ball hitters, Hutt was a high-ball hitter. So there, when Tom Seaver pitched, believe it or not, Tommy Hutt would play first base instead of Dick Allen hmm. because he, he just had success against Seaver. Funny game. It is a funny, funny game. Now, you mentioned uh, all this early success of yours and experience was as a Washington senator. And I want to maybe to try to enlighten us as to what it was like being a a young guy, just 21 years of age in 1960, you're just getting your feet fully immersed in the big leagues, and then suddenly they tell you, oh, by the way, the entire franchise is moving to Minnesota to play in a new stadium in a cornfield. Uh, what was that like as a, as a player to make that transition 
you know, we're currently in a time of a lot of unknowns, but I would think for you at that point that there's a lot of questions and unknowns when they tell you your whole franchise is moving. Well, you know, it was actually a, a positive piece of information because I think I was in the instructional league, uh, Don. That's a developmental league uh, that players go to in the in the fall for a couple months. And uh, when I heard when the announcement was made, and uh, we all thought it was positive because of what happened when the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee. About when the Braves moved to Milwaukee, you know, the players had a deal with the dealerships. They got a car to drive, which is what happened in Minneapolis, St. Paul for us. And so we, we really saw it as a positive move. Uh, you know, the stadium, Griffith Stadium in Washington was not in a, in a good spot. We didn't draw people. We didn't have a very good team. So, you know, it wasn't like they were moving a world championship franchise. It was really a breath of fresh air for us. And when you got here as an original twin, you were welcomed with open arms. Uh, it starts in 61. You had a core group of guys that are still revered here across Twins territory. And I want to jump into some of those highlights. Uh, let's go to 1962. And this is the rare highlight of a game you did not even play in. But it was a Twins first. We'll let you listen into this last out. Kralik checks Hauser. Here's the pitch. A swing and there's a pop-up. Vic Power in foul territory goes for the dugout. He's waiting. He has it. No hit, no run game. A no hit, no run game for Jack Kraling. Now, you started the next day. You threw a complete game shutout, but he had the first no hitter. Do you have memories of watching that unfold from the dugout? Absolutely, I do. You know, Jack was my roommate. And uh, what I would do on the days I didn't start on a nice day uh, at the Met, you know, I'd get a towel and put it on one of the steps down at the far end of the dugout, and I'd get a comfortable little spot there and relax to watch the game because I was pitching, as you said, the next day. Well, you know, about halfway through the game, I uh, used to have to go up to the clubhouse and uh, make a little uh, convenience stop, you know, mm-hmm. a little pit stop. And uh, so now I'm sitting there, and my roomie's getting them out one right after the other, and I said, I can't move. So there I sat until, I want to say, two out in the ninth, he walked Georgia Lusick. Two out Is in the ninth. Is that correct? Uh, I don't have the box in front of me, but I will try to okay. I'll dig it up. You tell yeah, me I, what, what you think was happening. Yeah, I think I think we're two out in the ninth, he, he walked Georgia Lusick, and then he got the next guy out for a no-hitter. Would have been a perfect game, and I quick. You know, ran out, congratulated him, and then I had to head up and do what I had to do with the Twins clubhouse. But I, I remember vividly that uh, that no-hitter. And then, of course, as you mentioned, pitching the next night, you say, well, what am I, I going to do for an encore after uh, after my roommate's no-hitter? And actually, that next game, the next night you mentioned, was uh, a 2 to nothing shout-out against Early Win when Early was going for his 300th win. Now, there's a side note I did not realize. Early Win was sitting on 299 that day. Yeah. Yeah, it took him about four or five cracks. I think that may have been his first crack at getting his 300th. And you uh, were standing in the way. Yeah. All right, let's see. Who was the walk? The walk was George Alusic. You were exactly right. With one out in the ninth yeah. inning, George Alusic. That's quite a memory, Mr. Cott. And then it was Consolo and Del Greco. And time for you to go to the bathroom. <laughs> as the, right, exactly. <laughs> as the no-hitter went in, into the books. 
Uh, that was 1962, and the energy was building in Minnesota, and you had some amazing players and personalities on those clubs. You developed this identity, the slugging twins. Uh, the people of, of the twins' territory really had, had taken to you, and then comes the magical summer of 1965. And we'll see if we have the, the clip ready to roll, but it's a game that is oft-talked about by by anybody who was around and following your club in the summer of 1965. It was just before the All-Star game. The hated Yankees were in town, and Mr. Killebrew sent them home with frowns on their faces with a walk-off home run. Oh, my, and imagine the season's only half over. One after another of games that go right down to the wire. Makes for great baseball, but a little tough on the blood pressure. Here's the pitch. A drive deep to left. Way back. It is a home run. Twins win. I imagine that might bring back a memory or two for you. Yeah, the uh, I started that game, and obviously I didn't do very well. <laughs> and, uh, there we are at the bottom of the ninth, and even though you know we had a, a comfortable lead, they were still the Yankees, and they'd won mm-hmm. five in a row, and we thought, boy, this is a big series. So if we don't win that game, they win three out of four, and they creep up on us. And uh, and I remember against Pete Mickelson, I mean, I think Harmon fouled off a number of two-strike pitches, and... Uh, like you said, when, when I think of 65, any pennant-winning season, I remember years I covered the Yankees, and I think of a grand slam home run that Tino Martinez hit one game. There are those memorable games that you, as a player, will look back at and say, boy, that was a big turning point. And, of course, uh, you mentioned the, the one that the killer, and that was that was what Harmon did. He, he hit big home runs in key situations. I remember... Um, a writer in Philadelphia had said when I got traded to the Phillies, he said, well, uh, your man's coming up for eligibility for the Hall of Fame. He said, I won't uh, vote for him the first time. Uh, Alan Lewis was his name. And I looked at him and I said, well, what do you want me to do about it? He said, well, you know, all he did was hit home runs. I said, that's the problem that we don't have interleague play. And you don't see a player play in person. Because I said, what Harmon could do is hit good pitching and get big hits in big situations. And you never got a chance to see that. And I think, uh, you know, I think it took Harmon four years before he, uh, I was at his induction in 1984. But, uh, yeah, that, that home run was memorable. I'll never forget that one. Yeah, and you had gone four and a third in that one. Now, just after that, the Met hosted uh, a very famous All-Star game in 1965. Now, you were not on that All-Star team. You were in 66 on the All-Star team. But being here in the Twin Cities, were you in and around that star-studded group that played in the 65 All-Star game at all? I, I was not. Those of us that were not in the All-Star game during those times, players probably still do it today, is that was when you got a kind of yep. a three-day vacation. Yeah, get out of and, Dodge. Uh, so I, I went. Uh, I, I was out of town during that time, but I remember, you know, so many Hall of Famers played in mm-hmm. that game. When you look at the at the rosters, I mean, it was it was quite a. I mean, Mays was there. I think McCovey was Clementi there. Yeah, I think I, one of I those, could, like Frank Robinson, had to come off the bench or something. Get it right here on Mike, but you probably have it. Yeah, it was one of those where I want to say, like a guy like Frank Robinson or Clemente had to had to come off the bench <laughs> because there, yeah. were, there were so many amazing players in that 65 for my money, maybe, maybe the most star studded all-star game that was ever played. 
Yeah, did did Mays hit a home run to lead off the game? Well, now now you're going to have me digging back into the into the box scores again. I'm going to have to look that one up for well, you. Well, see, but... I can I can bring it right up on my uh, retro sheet. You might be faster than me. But it was 1965, and it was a phenomenal collection of talent at the Met. And the Twins were well represented in that ball game as well. Uh, there was a, a host of Twins who participated. And, yeah, the National League put up a three-spot in the in the first inning. But listen to some of, some of the names. You know, Drysdale, Gibson, Koufax, Marshall, oh, yeah. Torrey, Banks, Santo, Aaron, Clemente, Mays, Robinson, Stargell. Billy Williams, Roberto Clemente came off the bench for the National League. Yeah. That's an, could, an, an amazing make the starting lineup. Neither could Al Kaline. Al Kaline had to come off the bench in the American League. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was quite a group of, of your peers uh, at Met Stadium. But when Met Stadium really took over that year was the postseason. And to get there, you had to clinch. And it was back in our nation's capital with you on the mound in a moment the Twins fans will never forget, and I would hazard a guess you won't forget this one either. Count remains two strikes on Don Zimmer. The Twins are leading 2-1. Two, two out in the Senator ninth inning of a fast-moving ball game. Pitch. Strike three! The Twins are on the pivot! here after a rocky start settled down and he struck out 10 as he got the last two men on strikeouts in the game last three out of four the twins got only three hits in the game against a gallant fate record in the washington club but the twins have won the pennant and there you have it you're on to the world series you struck out 10 you didn't walk a soul won the game two to one jim what'd you throw john what'd you throw don zimmer to clinch the pennant Oh, you know, it was funny. I got to know, first of all, yes, Mays did out a home run off Milk Pappas to lead off that all-star game. Uh, but, yes, uh, Zim became a good friend. We lived in the same area in the winter, St. Pete, Florida. Uh, you know, we had to work in those days. I worked at the in the off-season. I worked at the uh, youth center there in Bartlett Park, and we had a little softball team, basketball team. So Zim and I saw a lot of e- each other, and then – uh, later when, when I got to meet him, you know, he was a coach with the Yankees for years. And he mm-hmm. says, pal, you knew if you threw me a breaking ball anywhere, I was going to wail at it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a good breaking ball down in the dirt. And, uh, it was within one at bat of being Don Zimmer's last at bat in, in the, uh, major leagues. He went from there to Japan, but he had one more at bat in the major leagues after that. But, uh, gosh, that was such a, a memorable day because we, you know, we had a comfortable lead, but if some fans remember in 1964, the Phillies had a, like a mm-hmm. six game lead with eight to play and they blew it. Yeah. And so wherever we would go that last uh, few weeks, the hecklers, you know, the, the players on the other side would say, Hey, don't forget what happened to the Phillies last year. <laughs> so uh, that was our first crack at actually, clinching it and, and we did it in the first try, frankly. 
Kulisi hit a sacrifice fly, I think, in about the seventh inning to give us uh, a two-to-one lead. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, that's a day I'll never forget. I love to see those pictures. I think when I walk into when the clubhouse, Twins Clubhouse at Target Field, they have a, a picture of that right on the, on the wall, part of the mural there. Some of the greatest still shots in Twins history to me are from that clubhouse, whether it's you and Harmon yeah. or, or a couple of other guys. And, and the, the lockers look like something out of a out of a decrepit junior high, you know, like it's nothing like the, right. the posh <laughs> conditions of today. And there is just a sense in all of you that this was not just a season, but this was something you'd built up to and this this connectivity between the teammates in those pictures or something that just leaps right off of the off of the film. Yeah, that you know, and, and sixty five then, you know, the, the World Series was almost uh uh anticlimactic because we you know, nobody expected uh uh the twins to be there and uh, so we were, you know, the euphoria of going to the World Series. I when I look back on it I you know, you don't have all the scouting reports and information that teams have today. You just you have a day and you show up and you play. But, uh, uh, you know, we were just so thrilled with, uh, with winning that pennant. And I, you know, we had a good team and I thought we're going to be back again. Uh, we ran into Frank Robinson in 66 and then they started trading away some of our players in 67. We had that, you know, disappointing end of the season, then came back, won a couple of divisions. But, just to show you how special it is to get to that World Series, uh, the Orioles and the Indians were playing in the championship series in 1997, and my friend Tim McCarver was part of the telecast crew, and I was watching the game. And he said, if the Orioles win, Cal Ripken will go back to the World Series for the first time since 1983. That'll be a 14-year span between appearances. He said, who has the all-time record for the longest period of time between World Series appearances? And I scratched my head, and I said, I think I'm the answer to that question. And I was. I went back to the World Series at age 43 with the Cardinals in 1982. But that shows you how rare it is to get to a World Series, because I went in 65, and I had to wait. 17 years later before finally getting back to one. And, and we had a very good team with the twins. We never just never could get back there. Yeah, it was that. Yeah, and the one in, in 82, I remember the story, you and Paul Molitor were the two guys out talking to the media before the World Series started of uh, of all the twosomes uh, to uh, to meet the press. But the 65 series, Jim, they, they didn't maybe have all the scouting reports, but what a series it, it turned out to be. And in game two, they obviously didn't have a scouting report on how to pitch you because this was you at the bat. There's a long lead to try to upset Farinowski. A ground ball, base hit the center field. Hot single, one run in. Here comes another man home. Throw to the plate. Is not in time. Two runs score. coach along the line, Joe, said, and I mentioned his hitting, a pitcher, a hitting pitcher of renown. Anyway, he certainly falls into that category now. He gets himself a single, and that might knock Peronowski right out of the ball game. The Twins now have hiked their lead up to 5-1, to one, 
And this has got to be the biggest hit that Jim Cott has ever picked up in his life. Well, I'll put it to you. Is that the biggest hit that a, pit, a hitting pitcher of renown <laughs> had ever gotten in his life? <laughs> well, you know, we the funny thing about that was we had a 3-1 to one lead. You know, Rod Paranowski became a teammate uh, yep. of mine in, in a few years after that, and he was the pitcher. Well, there were men on first and second, and, and Perry balked on purpose to move the runners to second and third, and then he purposely walked Frank Corlesey to load the bases to get to beat. So, you know, I can rib him a little bit. That's such a cool thing to be able to say as a pitcher that you knocked in a couple of the World Series. But I can't say it was the the biggest hit. You know, we had a we had a three to one uh, three to one lead. I had a couple moments that I think are a little more special from hitting is when you like the dream is to always like pitch a shutout and hit one out. And uh, I was fortunate to do that, I think, a time or two. But certainly that was a, that was a big hit because today you wouldn't think a 3-1 lead is that big. But, you know, you felt the Dodgers weren't that great a hitting team. And just to have a 3-1 lead going into the ninth was fine, but 5-1 to one was better. Well, I tell you what. You know, you, the, you... the cute story, if I have time to tell you, I mean, you, you, we probably told it before, but, you know, I faced Koufax games two, five, and seven. Sandy didn't pitch game one because of the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. And as an aside, that I believe is the last seven-game World Series where every win was a complete game win. Mm. So uh, Drysdale started game one, and we knocked Drysdale out maybe in the fourth inning or so. We knocked him out pretty good. So he uh, knocked him around pretty good. So when Alston came out to the mound to get the ball, Drysdale handed him the ball and looked at him and said, I bet you wish I was Jewish, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was a great line. (laughs) Well, in game two, you knocked in two. You only gave up one. You went the distance, as you mentioned, and here's how it wrapped up. Runner at third base, Lefevre, Parker's at second, and there's a ball hit right at the center. He's got it. Jimmy Cox didn't even know he had it. Line drive. He grabs in the heel of the glove. Game is over. So, no runs, one hit, two left. The final score, Minnesota wins it, 5-1. It's a perfect last out for so many reasons, Jim, and Jim Cotter is our guest here in the Twins Clubhouse. Game two of the 65 World Series, to me, showcased everything that makes you a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame. You pitched a complete game against Sandy Koufax and won a World Series game. You, you knocked in two runs because you could always hit. You were a complete player. And, oh, by the way, you were the best fielding pitcher to ever stand on a pitcher's mound with 16 gold gloves, so you handled the last out yourself. Uh, all wrapped up in one nine-inning package. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. But you know what What I wish would get more attention in that game, and uh, if it happened in a bigger market, where maybe it would have. You know, Bob Allison in left field was, you know, Bob was not known as a, as a gold glove fielder he was what you'd call a decent outfielder but not gold glove caliber outfield and the catch he made in the middle of that game I was in a little bit of a a tight spot and Jim Lefevre hit a hook and line drive down the left field line it was a cold muddy day if Mm -hmm. anybody remembers that that was was at that game and he slid in the mud you know right near the foul line and made that remarkable catch had he not made that catch with Koufax on the mound I, I would say we would have had trouble winning that game. So 
that was a catch to me that uh, that deserves a lot more national attention. They should play that a lot more on uh, some of the highlights and some of the cable shows because, you know, there are a lot of catches in the World Series history. Kirby's catch in Marshall Gate 6 was remarkable, but that catch that Bob made uh, saved the day for me. And the picture, again, we go back to some of the old pictures in the archives, and you mentioned the mud, and you can you get cold chills looking at the picture of him sliding through that muck uh, down yeah. in the left field corner uh, at Met Stadium. Well, well, that was 65. 1966, you win 25 games. You throw 304 and two-thirds innings. Most wins ever by a Twins pitcher to this day. You, you play in the All-Star game uh, again. Uh, one of three all-star appearances. Was that your best season, 66? You know, that's an interesting question because, uh, and a fair question, because when you say, well, you were 25 and 13, there was only one Cy Young Award winner then, you know, it was uh, Mm -hmm. one one for the whole, both leagues. So Koufax went 27 and nine, he got the Cy Young Award. So, you know, I got the equivalent of it, uh, pitcher of the year, but, I never really had a true Cy Young award because of that. So you'd say, well, that was your, you know, your best year. I had 19 complete games, but you know, after I injured my arm in 67 and I was a little slow in coming back, but uh, you know, interesting thing about the financial structure of baseball today versus then I had 14 wins every year, 68, nine, 70, but uh, I took a cut and pay every year. <laughs> And then in 71, uh, if you were to look at the numbers, I probably had, I would say, as effective a year of pitching as I did in 66. And guess what my record was? 13 and 14. I had like 260 innings, 15 complete games, I think four or five shutouts, ERA down the low threes. But it was just one of those games when I pitched well, you know, we'd lose three to two or something. So... 71, though you wouldn't think so, at 13 and 14, was very close in my mind to the way I pitched in in 66. But, you know, it, it's sometimes it's the old, it's not always how you pitch, but when you pitch, I remember yeah. a game I had when I was running into a little trouble in the sixth inning against the Red Sox. I think we were leading like 9-4, to four and I gave up a couple hits, and Sam came out, well, I don't know, he... Uh, let think I'm going to make a change. You don't have your A stuff today. I said, Sam, let, us, let me stay in here. I said, I'm fine. I said, there's no need to bring the bullpen in a game like this, nine to four. I said, let me hang in. I might even knock in a couple. Well, uh, I went nine innings and we won the game 15 to nine. <laughs> now that wouldn't happen today, but see, I, I had those. Uh, don't you know, Calvin would throw that up to me at contract time. You know, well, I know oh, you won 25 games, so you know you won 10 to 4 and 50 to 9. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned 67. You weren't at your healthiest all year long. It was also Rod Carew's rookie season. You saw Rod as a rookie. You saw the great Tony Oliva as a rookie. Uh, when Rodney came around, and he's such a singular hitter and such a singular player in his career. But having seen Tony as a rookie as well, was there uh, a comparison in your mind's eye or, or was there a similarity that you saw or what was the difference if, if not the case? Well, I, I don't think there was a similarity. I've often said that, you know, Harmon's in the hall of fame and he deserves to, he was a pure slugger with 573 home runs. Rod Carew is in the hall of fame and he deserves, he's got what, seven batting titles. He could just serve the ball all over the field. 
Tony Oliva was a combination of both. Mm. He had power and he hit for average. Still the only player, to my knowledge, to win a batting title his first two years. Mm -hmm. uh, in my mind, uh, Tony Oliva should have been the MVP in 65. And in fairness to Zoilo, I think that actually did more harm to Zoilo's career than it helped him. Because mm -hmm. the next year, he... He just had the weight of the team on his shoulders because he was a 65 MVP and he never was very productive after that. And, uh, you know, Tony had the kind of year that he could easily have been the MVP as well. So uh, Tony, who should be in the Hall of Fame, was the combination of power and average, whereas Rodney was pure average and Harmon was was pure power. I can, I remember Tony would come back to the dugout sometime. He'd have a line drive right at the left fielder, and he'd come back and he'd hold his hands up. Oh, he had a few little Spanish terms he used. And then Rodney would go up and off the end of the bat, he'd like slice one in front of the left fielder. We'd say to T, you know, you just hit the ball too hard. You got you got to learn how to serve it. I mean, if you judged Rod Carew's exit velocity, he wouldn't be in the top fifty in the league. He didn't care about that. He he could just hit it where they worked. Oh, that's a great way to put it, Jim. Jim Cott is our guest. This is the Twins Clubhouse. Very excited to have Jim Cott with us. Brought to you by Securian Financial, who can help you make every moment count. Find out more about their insurance, investment, and retirement solutions at Securian.com. Jim, you were part of some really good Twins teams right as divisional play came into being, uh, and you alluded to it a little bit. Let's go to 1969. That was the first year of divisional play, and we'll start with a, a highlight from early in the season. I believe this is you at the plate. Although physically handicapped part of the season, when Jim Cott was in the lineup, he was the same tough competitor whether on the mound or at the plate. May 7th at Cleveland against Louis Tiant. Runners move off. Tiant is set for the 2-2 pitch. It's on the way, and Cott slams it deep into left center field. After the ball is shine blue, and maybe over his head, it is. Two runs are going to score. Across the plate is Manuel. Roseboro around third and heading for home scores easily and Cott is at second with a double. And that was mostly an excuse to get Halsey Hall in here because uh, just the sound of his voice makes me smile from ear to ear. But that uh, double from you, that was against Cleveland early. Talk about 69 a little bit. You weren't always physically at your best, as, as you alluded to. And I know, I, is that the year you never got to pitch in the division series against Baltimore? Yeah, that was that was a bit of controversy. I think Billy had asked Kelvin who, you know, he should start in the playoffs. And uh, and he mentioned, I think it was Perry Boswell and then myself. And uh, Billy said, well, I'm going to start Bob Miller. And, uh, you know, because I was coming off uh, uh, injured the year in, in 67 and 68 was a so-so year. I think I just barely got over 200 innings. Uh so I didn't pitch in the play. I mean, it, it wasn't that disappointing to me. I can't say that I, I deserve to, but it, from a team standpoint, it was like a year that it would have been a shocker if we didn't win that division because, mm -hmm. you know, I, we just didn't see anybody else that could compete with us. Uh, uh, I don't know what we ended up winning the division by, but I know during that year that, uh, Harmon and I would talk and we would look at the Kansas City A's and we would say, or the, yeah, the A's, they were still the A's, and would say, these guys are really going to be good. And then, of course, it wasn't long before the Oakland A's, they moved to Oakland and they were really good because they won three mm -hmm. state world championships. But, you know, Reggie and and uh, Bando, Joe Rudy, Catfish, Vita Blue, all those guys, they were just coming up and you could tell they were going to be good. But for that year, 69 and probably 70, 
we were head and shoulders the best team, and, and we won the division both years. Unfortunately, we couldn't get by that good pitching of uh, Baltimore. You know, those two playoff games in 69 that were such close ones uh, were still, I think, two of the best playoff games ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Mitterwald hit a home run that went about three feet foul that would have given us a lead in, I think, the 10th inning in the first one. And we were all a little puzzled why uh, Jim Perry had pitched a great game, uh, but we had Paranowski in the bullpen and Boop Powell coming up, and uh, uh, Billy let Perry face uh, Boogie at a home run to tie it, and they wanted in extras. Yeah, you talk about that uh, 4-3 game in 12 innings, and then an 11 inning, one nothing ball game, and again, pitching was the name of the game then, and and also in 1970. You go on, you eventually get back, as we mentioned, to the World Series with St. Louis uh, years later. Uh, and and the one other clip we have for you has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with your pitching. Has nothing to do with your hitting. It's a story from your longtime friend and teammate Harmon Killebrew that was just too good not to share. Take a listen to this from Harm. Somebody hit a one-hop line drive and hit him in the mouth, and uh, it was two outs in the inning. The ball ricocheted over to Rich Rollins at third base, and he picked the ball up threw it to me at first base. And like I did every time there was two outs in the inning, I always looked at the ball to see if there was any scuff marks or, or anything on the ball. And uh, I looked at the ball and had Jim's teeth sticking in the ball. And so I gave, gave Jim the ball. I think he probably still has that ball. But... Uh, the point I was wanting to make about that is he didn't miss his turn. He's pitching. He had oral surgery, and uh, on that fourth day, we rolled around. Jim was on the mound pitching, and uh, that's dedication, and uh, that's that's the type of uh, pitcher Jim Cott was. It's supposed to be your eye on the ball, Jim, not your tooth on the ball. <laughs> what, was, <laughs> what was the play? Well, that's kind of harming. Yeah, actually, if I was not in good position to feel it, it wouldn't have uh, hit me, but it was a wet night, and Bubba Morton hit it, and it skipped right off the top of my glove and, and caught the bottom of my teeth. Ironically, I am going to the dentist tomorrow morning to get a – I had a failed implant that uh, I have to get replaced. And since 57 years ago, obviously the twins were covered by workman's comp that year, but I would say I have spent $15,000 on – repairing these teeth that I got knocked out <laughs> July 24, 1962. And I do have the ball. The teeth fragments were in it for a while. I wish that I would have uh, kept it in a loose sight to the case right away, but I still do have the, uh, the ball in the, uh, as Harmon said, uh, you know, I made my next start because uh, Herb score. If, if any of our older fan, younger fans probably won't remember mm-hmm. it, but Herb score was a very talented left-hand pitcher and he got struck in the eye by a line drive off the bat of Gil McDougal in 1956. And it liberally really affected his career in an adverse way. So I remember that story. So after I got hit in the mouth that night, it was a Tuesday night. So my next turn was coming up Saturday afternoon in Cleveland uh, on the fourth day, which we always pitched. And, uh, and they said, well, we're thinking about uh, disabling you. And Calvin didn't like to disable players because when you're on disablers, you get paid. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like that. So I, I fit right into that bowl. I said, no, I don't want to go on the disabled list. I'd like you to find a rubber boxer's mouthpiece. And my mouth was stitched up pretty good. And um, 
so I did make my start on Saturday, and wouldn't you know, Willie Tasby hit the first ball back at me on a one-hop, and I made the play, and that kind of that that was so timely that uh, that he did that, that it hit right back at me, and I was, you know, it's like a skier or something or anything mm-hmm. else, get their jockey get back on the horse. So I was glad I did that, and uh, uh, worked out well. Yeah, I would say that it definitely did, and you mentioned Herb Score. Never the same as a pitcher, but like yourself, went on to a great broadcasting career, legendary in Cleveland uh, yeah, as a personality yeah. uh, for years and years and years. Just a delightful guy uh, to talk about baseball with for a long, long time. Well, Jim, yeah, I, really, I don't know. Yeah, how... I really enjoyed my time getting to know Herb when he was uh, when he was up in the booth. Uh, yeah, he was. In fact, uh, mentioning Harmon, I made those comments. Uh, I used to ask Harmon about you know, hard throwers when he came up and the Herb score was one that he mentioned, you know, he, he said he was the hardest throwing left-hander he ever faced. So, uh, and, and Herbie led the league in strikeouts, I think a year or two. And then that, that line drive just ended it for him. Well, Jim, I can't top your teeth ending up in a ball that Rich Rollins throws to uh, Harmon Killeroo at first base. Uh, I don't have a better highlight than that or clip to play, uh, but I do have to tell you, it is always so much fun uh, to to converse with you, whether we're talking about things that have already happened like we did today or that may happen uh, in the months to come uh, as hopefully we get back to baseball. You are an absolute delight to talk baseball or anything else with uh, at any point in time. Uh, you are as connected as they come around the league. Do you have any insight into what maybe the 2020 season is, is finally going to shape up as? And if you had your druthers, uh, and uh, the virus was willing to comply. Uh, is there anything you'd like to see the league maybe try out here as long as we're in a utterly unparalleled and unprecedented situation? Well, I think, Chris, first of all, reality. Now, down here in Florida, I have to play golf at the same place that Tony Petiti, who was a high-level executive with MLB. So I see Tony, and not that he's going to tell me things that are confidential, but what I uh, gleaned from our conversation yesterday, I believe as we speak, Rob Manfred is informing all 30 owners what the owners are going to propose to the players, and we will probably hear and read about it tomorrow. Uh, and I believe they're shooting for an 80-game season. Uh, I think it'll be about a, a week to two-week negotiation period because Boy, I cringe when I think about this, but I think one of the sticking points is going to be, will the players be willing to take uh, another haircut in pay? And you know fans are going to be too sympathetic with the players that the average salary is $4.4 million a year, but that is going to be a negotiating point. And if they get through that, uh, go to spring training June 10. I believe they're hoping they could start early July, play an 80-game schedule. Most of the fans out there that follow baseball are aware they'll make three 10-team divisions. So the East will have the Yankees and the Mets and all of those teams. Twins would be in with Cleveland and both Chicago teams, et cetera. As far as things I'd like to see, and again, it's all fantasy, but I've always, in the last few years, been promoting seven-inning games. And the big thing with teams coming back right now is their pitchers. um, There was a a doctor, I think it was a Yankee doctor, had a comment yesterday. He was all concerned about would there be more 
uh, injuries of the Tommy John variety because the pitchers, of course, like to throw hard, and now they've been off for a while, and I don't care how much you've thrown on the side, throwing in a game is different, that uh, are they going to be susceptible to arm injuries? And because of that, I think you're going to see uh, managers just use their pitchers for, say, three innings or more. So I'm saying, well, I wish we'd play seven-inning games. Then they could actually play a few seven-inning doubleheaders and get in more mm-hmm. games. But uh, I think for the most part this year, instead of getting too uh, you know, too aggressive about trying new things, I just hope that uh, the players comply and that we just say, look, let's, uh, let's bear the pain. Let's do the right thing. Let's step in, play baseball, give the fans a season for 2020. Uh, I think we'll get a chance to televise some games. You can imagine the TV ratings might be off the chart with people starved for baseball. And uh, so I hope I hope that that happens. Now, again, I hope you're to, right. To add to that, I think there's going to be an expanded uh, playoff format which is where of course teams generate more revenue in the in the playoffs i believe they're talking about seven teams in each league being in the playoffs and the division winners get a buy uh and then uh some of the other details of it i'm sure we'll read about tomorrow well i tell you what jim it's been great talking to you today but i certainly look forward hopefully at some point this uh late summer or fall of having a conversation with you in a press box just like the good old days, and I hope you are right that that does, in fact, come to pass. The great Jim Cott, Twins Hall of Famer, our guest on the Twins Clubhouse. We appreciate you joining us today, brought to you by Security and Financial, right here on the home of Twins Baseball. This has been a presentation of the Treasure Island Baseball Network.